Obviously, there is a very, very well-developed plan that exists concerning food and the transformations that are necessary or that the globalists believe are necessary uh, to the food supply and the way that people eat in order to bring about the Great Reset. Hi, I'm Evelyn Ray. Welcome to another episode of The Cauldron Pool Show. Tonight we have a bit of a change of pace. We're not really changing direction because I all think we're all headed towards the same uh, destination. But I wanted to sort of change topics. I've been going really deep into theological matters, lots of biblical things. Um, but I wanted to talk about something else I'm really passionate about, which is personal responsibility. And I think one of the ways a person can be responsible for themselves is through their health. And I think that it is something that we have lost. It is something that is sort of um, forced out of our hands almost by the culture that we have cultivated over here in the West. And I thought there was no one better to talk about this subject than the raw egg nationalist. So I want to thank you so much for joining me. Uh, it's a pleasure, Evelyn. Thank you. A lot of people probably know you from uh, maybe um, Twitter. I'm guessing that's probably where you have most of your activity. That's where I sort of found you. Um, but you're also a very, uh, you're very well-written bloke as well. You're not just a bodybuilder. You're not just someone who is telling people to lift weights. You're also got a lot of books that you've published. You have Man's World, which is a magazine um, designed for men. And also you write many articles for lots of different places, all sort of based on health. And just recently you released uh, a book called The uh, Eggs Benedict Option. And I was really excited about that because it doesn't just sort of go into things on a very surface level. You go really deep into food, into health, uh, into farming and all those things. So before we sort of go into the book and into some other things, I was hoping you might be able to tell some of the audience over here in Australia and anyone else who might be watching a little bit about who you are. I know you like to stay anonymous and I'm happy to respect that, but sort of what got you into this space and why you sort of felt really passionate to sort of put your thoughts and ideas and opinions sort of out there on the internet for people to read. Uh, well, uh, no, thank you for having me, Evelyn, and it would be my pleasure to explain exactly what I'm about as far as I understand it myself, because uh, <laughs> aspects of it are still fairly, fairly opaque to me. It's uh, still quite a surprise that I've been as successful as I am being an anonymous, anonymous Twitter uh, commentator. Um, uh, so I started, uh, I've always had a background in uh, in health and fitness. I've always been a very sporty person. I taught martial arts uh, in my late teenage years. Um, I've always looked after myself. I've always known, or I've come to know increasingly, um, the importance of looking after oneself, the importance of uh, eating properly and exercising, um, in order, in order not just to be physically healthy, but also mentally healthy. So I've always, um, I've always understood that, uh, as the Romans did, that one must have a sound mind in a sound body. The two are, the two are inseparable. But um, I really got into, uh, into this current um, situation I'm in, whatever you want to call it, uh, this current guise. Uh, about two or so years ago, I had a lurker account on Twitter. Uh, which was called Turning Turning Point Gobekli Tepe, which was uh, a reference to Graham Hancock. I don't know if any of your listeners or viewers know about Graham Hancock. He writes about um, he writes about sort of uh, prehistoric civilizations and Atlantis and things like that. He's been on Joe Rogan a couple of times, but he talks about Gobekli Tepe, which is an early agricultural settlement uh, in the Near East in Turkey one of the first places i think where agriculture was practiced and uh so the name turning point gobekli tepe was basically a, a a reference to my idea that the agricultural revolution and its consequences have been a disaster for the human race um in certain certain regards not entirely but in certain important regards so i was just a lurker for a while but then i i got into i got behind this hashtag raw egg nationalism people were knocking back raw eggs and um uh and it was sort of developing into uh a political philosophy as well a political philosophy based on based on the the basic notion that a that a nation is only 
is only really as strong as the individuals who comprise it. So if you want to have a strong nation, you have to have strong individuals. So that is that is the fundamental principle of raw egg nationalism. And I got behind it. Uh, I chose the moniker of the raw egg nationalist, not really, not really thinking that I would become the figurehead of the movement, but I have um, somehow somehow maybe despite myself but uh, i put out a cookbook that was the first thing that i did that was the first big thing that i did i wrote a a raw egg nationalism cookbook um which sort of uh contained a lot of egg recipes as you might expect but also went into detail about the sort of uh, the doctrine the law behind uh raw egg nationalism what it really means to be a raw egg nationalist the kind of forces that we're up against, which I like to call soy globalism. That's the sort of that's the opposite of the of the raw egg nationalist vision is the soy globalist vision, which is, well, really the world that we live in today. Um, mm. uh, a world where a world ruled by corporate interests, a world of depend where dependency is fostered on the perverted products of uh, corporate corporations and scientists where people aren't encouraged to take personal responsibility for themselves or their health. Um, so that's that's really the enemy. That's that's the enemy of everything, or that is the opposite of everything that we try to promote and that I try to promote as the Raw Egg Nationalist. So it started with a cookbook, and uh, I've written other books since uh, about Golden Age bodybuilders, about Vince Gironda, the great Golden Age bodybuilder who is my avatar. My avatar is he ascended the laser eyes Geronda because uh he was um he was really a, a great champion of the humble egg and its um and its uh amazing properties because the egg is a superfood as uh I'd be happy to tell you more about why the egg is a superfood, but he championed he championed the consumption of large quantities of raw eggs as an alternative to taking anabolic steroids. Mm-hmm. Um uh, but I've also, yes, I've also founded a magazine, ma- men's magazine, that sort of uh, espouses some of the ideals that um, I espouse and that my fellow raw egg nationalists and people on the, the Twitter right espouse. So that's eight issues deep now. Ninth issue will be coming out in January. And then, uh, yes, uh, to top it all off, I've got my new book, The Eggs Benedict Option, which is which is basically an exploration of the Great Reset, and from the from the uh, with a particular emphasis on food, because uh, I think that the Great Reset vision of the future is founded on a fundamental transformation to the way that we uh, of the way that we are going to eat in the future. So I wanted to I wanted to let people know exactly what was going to what is what the globalists want to happen, and also how we can potentially fight it. And I think that's what I I liked about this particular book of yours is that you don't just sort of, you know, yell into into sort of the atmosphere about what's happening. You give solutions, you give practical ones, tangible ones, and you give people something that they can strive for because I think people need to have a purpose. And I think a lot of men and a lot of women have lost their purpose and a lot of people just don't know what to do. I think people either live in willful blindness and they just don't want to have any idea and then you've got people who become very apathetic who are aware of what's going on. Um, But I think if you give people something to do with their hands and you give them purpose and meaning, um, people will actually get a lot more motivated to get off their backsides and do something about it. So I really like that your book does do that. It sort of gives you solutions to what's going on. It identifies a problem and then gives you solutions for it. But I wanted to sort of touch on something, um, if you don't mind, that you mentioned at the beginning, which was superfoods. You were sort of talking about how eggs are a superfood. And it's interesting because if you look today anywhere on social media, all the advertisements that you get on Instagram, all of the books that you see on mainstream shelves in your local sort of uh, shopping centers, everything that is superfood has a picture of kale or has a picture of some sort of greens. Yeah. Um, but if you actually look um, back, I guess post uh, uh, 50 years, I would say, it was very, very different. Superfoods were completely different back then to what they are today. And you do sort of go into this a lot with um, some of the things you've written about, some of the things you tweeted about, which is what superfoods really are in comparison to what Mm. they're telling us they are today. And so I wanted to sort of, if you don't mind, sort of go into 
why eggs are a superfood, um, obviously we're told today because of the cholesterol, we're all going to get heart disease, we're all going to die, but why mm. you think that that's wrong and why the superfoods that they're telling us today are not actually superfoods? Well, eggs are a superfood because they're they're one they're they're part of a class of foods that you could refer to as nutrient dense animal products, um, which include things like organ meats as well. So, liver, I think, is is probably the most liver along with eggs. I think um, are probably the most nutrient dense foods in the world. Um, now. And it's and there's a very very interesting very very interesting story to tell about precisely why those foods now are amongst are amongst the the foods that are most demonised uh, by nutritionists by so called or so called nutritionists so called nutrition scientists scientists um, physicians who seem to in fact actually I think the average physician knows very very little about nutrition. You know, most doctors when they when they do their medical training, they spend very little time learning anything about nutrition at all. And what they do learn is is you know just straight from a textbook. It's hopelessly outdated and simplified. But no, the the real superfoods are nutrient dense animal products, and uh, I go into this in great detail in my new book, The Eggs Benedict Option, because it is because the Great Reset Plan for uh a global diet and that is what um people like klaus schwab at the world economic forum want is a global diet they want a global plant-based diet basically and uh it's my contention that this would be a that this would be dreadful for human health absolutely dreadful because it is a deviation from the type of foods that humans should be eating and when i when i make the this claim um, I draw on the work of a of a very famous dentist known as Weston Price, who uh, wrote a book called Nutrition and Physical Degeneration in the 1930s. Uh, he was a he was a dentist in Cleveland, Ohio. He was actually Canadian, but he uh, had his practice in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, from about the late 1880s through into the 1920s, 1930s. And what he noticed was that. An increasing number of his patients, especially children, were presenting uh, all sorts of terrible, terrible facial deformities, deformities of the jaw, principally. So crowded and misaligned teeth, terrible cavities, malformed dental arches, so that's the top of the mouth, um, narrow nasal passages, narrow cheeks. So their whole faces, their whole faces were... Um, were degenerating essentially and he was witnessing this happen in real time now the 1880s and the 1890s in america and in that part of america were a time when people were starting to move to industrially produced diets so they were they were eating in industrial mainly grain products um moving away from uh traditional whole food diets western price being a clever man understood that something fundamental was happening to people's diets and that it was probably probably the cause of all of the changes that he was seeing so what he wanted what he decided to do was to test this hypothesis by traveling around the world and visiting traditional cultures who were eating their traditional diets in order to um try to find out the the foods that people well firstly to identify groups of people who displayed perfect health what he described as perfect health so i mean principally by that he meant perfect dentition but the thing to remember is that dentition, i.e., the health of your mouth, is a broad is an index of your health overall. So if you have uh, you know, crowded, um, rotting teeth and uh, narrow nasal passages and narrow cheeks and a recessed jaw, then it's not just your it's not just your face that is unattractive and unhealthy. It is it's likely to be your entire body. You know these are. These are signs of overall ill health. So he he decided to go around and uh, around the world, and he travelled to every continent uh, to look for groups who displayed perfect health and to find out what they were eating. And basically, long story short, he discovered that the groups, the traditional societies that displayed perfect health, 
all at basically the same kinds of foods. Now, although they're on different continents, so you know, an, an, a member of an, an Inuit tribe doesn't eat the same thing as a member of the Maasai. The classes of food that they were eating were the same. So he identified nutrient-dense animal products, principally organs, fatty cuts of meat, sea uh, shellfish, um, animal fat products like lard and butter, uh, and eggs, um, and lean and lean protein too, mm. as the as the principal foods that these groups who displayed perfect health would consume. Um, and really, as far as I'm concerned, then what Western Price did with this study, and it's the kind of study actually that you would never, that you would have trouble doing again now for various reasons. Some of those reasons being, for instance, that traditional groups eating their traditional diets have basically disappeared from the world. You know, you might have them in very small numbers, maybe in places like Papua New Guinea and the deepest, darkest Amazon, but, you know, the, these groups don't really exist anymore. As they did then, and then there's also the, the the political problems that would be involved in a a white uh, a stale pale white male traveling around the world, sort of categorizing um, you know uh, primitive groups as they were known then. You know that there's a would obviously be some kind of political outcry about the sort of uh, colonialist uh, overtones of such an enterprise. But um, what I basically think he did was he he identified iron laws of human nutrition he identified how humans should be eating in order to flourish and how humans did eat until recently in order to flourish and that's the that's a crucial point is that we have deviated and we continue to deviate from the ways that we that our ancestors ate because our ancestors weren't unhealthy some of our ancestors were unhealthy sure but um you know you only need to look, for instance, there's a very famous picture of um, three Aboriginal men from Bathurst Island. There was an expedition to Bathurst Island, which I think is possibly in the Torres Straits, somewhere like that, in 1898. And there are these wonderful pictures of, of Aborigines as they were. And three, there's a picture in particular of three Aboriginal men, one of whom is probably in his 60s, I think. And they are absolutely ripped. It's unbelievable. Mm how good they i mean they have they have bodies that would shame most hardcore gym goers today you know they they mm. look they look really good mm. um uh so but to get back to my main point which is that we have deviated from the pattern that that that, that has been followed since time immemorial and uh we are paying that price now the reasons the reasons why are complicated but i mean bad science certainly comes into it there is a lot of bad science and a Selective lot of science yes if you if you look at the way that nutritional nutritional science is done then there are a lot of problems and it's very very easy to produce the kinds of results you want especially if you've got funding from say uh you know uh, a breakfast cereal company or um uh you know some other big corporate food producer that wants a certain kind of a certain kind of results the canola growers association for instance oh look they've sponsored some research that says that canola oil is extremely healthy um uh it's very easy to fudge data when we're talking about nutrition because there are so many different so many different variables involved and you'll find for instance with a lot of the studies that say that red meat is bad for you hmm. they're not controlling other variables so you know it, it might be the case that yes, these the people who have a say an elevated cancer risk are eating red meat, but they're also doing other things that are unhealthy too. Um, they're also eating other kinds of foods that are unhealthy too. Mm. Not not that red meat is unhealthy, by the way. That's they are eating. Yeah. They're eating. They're they're eating and doing things that are unhealthy that are contributing, but aren't controlled by the by mm. the uh, or controlled for by the by the scientists who are doing the study. So. Um, it's a complicated it's a complicated thing but we've arrived at a point now at the with the great reset where a global plant-based diet is being proposed and that is the worst possible thing the worst possible thing for human health and flourishing as far as i can see and as far as the evidence uh of somebody like western price uh 
would suggest, I mean, he, he was unequivocal that none of the groups that he examined consumed large quantities. They did consume some plants, but no uh, traditional group that he studied built per- perfect health on a plant-based diet. It was an oxymoron as far as he was concerned. So, yes, mm-hmm. we, we are at a we are at a point now where we have totally inverted, totally inverted the truth of the truth of um, of the foods that we should be eating, and uh, it's already had terrible effects. I mean the 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 dreadful dreadful illness, the sickness that pervades the West now, that pervades the developed world, is largely a result of our abandoning of traditional traditional foods and traditional modes of preparation of foods as well. I think there was a big shift. Um, I don't know exactly when, but not just in the foods that we were eating, but in the way that we were farming and what we were sort of putting into our foods in the soil. Um, You know, I'm a farmer myself and um, I sort of, you know, can see even in my short time in this field, how practices change, but I'm, I'm pretty sure, and you probably know better than me, there was a time in history and i'd say it would probably be recent history where there was a big shift in i guess farming and agriculture and things like that and i think that's having a huge effect on our health as well i don't think we're putting anywhere near as much into the soil as we should be we just keep taking and taking and taking and at some point we have to replenish or we're never gonna mm-hmm. be able to get foods um, back to how they should be, which is good for our bodies but you sort of drew on a, a parallel with um, that particular dentist you said that um, he's probably, you know, today, if that similar sort of study was to be done, he wouldn't really be able to do it because of well, the politics of it. And I'm glad that you mentioned that because there's something I wanted to touch on, which is how uh, linked and almost in a marriage health and politics actually are. And that's something that I sort of have learned the last few years, especially <laughs> with everything going on. Um, and it's something that you've also, um, I've sort of been following along and sort of going on that journey with just seeing how closely linked a person's health is to where they sort of sit politically and people probably go what I mean obviously there's exceptions to to that particular rule but usually people who are really fit people who are healthy people who care what they're putting into their body are people who are generally uh, I'd say people who are responsible and they they're probably self-sufficient and they're probably more on the spectrum of politics um, that likes to have freedom of choice in certain things Um, and you look, you know, you only have to look at mugshots of police <laughs> that they send out mm-hmm. and you can look at people and you go, they're certainly not in my spectrum of politics, I would say, because, you know, they're quite unhealthy and things. Um, and it's really interesting just watching and sort of coming to that realisation how how they're so connected, the two ideas of health and politics. And I do like that you've also done that in your latest book. You know, obviously the Great Reset is a big thing on a lot of people's minds, Agenda 2030. You know, they want us to, I think the the common phrase is eat the bugs. You know, they want us to do that and we're getting so many pushes, Uh, especially in Australia. I'm not sure if it's the same in your neck of the woods, in your part of the world, but we have so many companies over here in Australia, chocolate companies, school canteen companies, chips, you name it, everyone over here is turning to crickets and all of this. And so for those of us who can see um, and who have known about Agenda 2030, like we're seeing all these things happening, going, it's coming to fruition. It's starting to be a little bit more tangible. We can sort of see it now. It's not just some idea that, you know, might never happen. It's it's actually a real thing. And your book's great because you talk about um, the Great Reset, their intentions, what they want to do and how they're trying to do it. And you sort of discuss, I guess, in there, um, this global diet and you mention all of those sorts of things. Um, I, I don't want to, I'd love it if you could sort of elaborate a little bit on that global diet that they're sort of trying to push on us um, that sort of aligns with that whole Great Reset idea. Yeah, of course, of course, I'd be more than happy to. I, the, the thing about the thing about politics and health, as you say, is that now they really are inextricably, inextricably linked in a way that perhaps they wasn't the case once upon a time. I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily think that uh, caring about the way about your health and fitness should necessarily just be a conservative or a right-wing issue, but that's the way the cookie has crumbled now, and and it most definitely is. I think in large part, actually, because 
as you say, um, certain virtues and and a certain a certain um, worldview now is is necessary in order to be in order to care. Health isn't a given anymore. You can't just assume, perhaps as as you might once upon a time have assumed that you know just living a normal life will bring you good health just eating the kind of foods that people eat and doing the kind of activities that people do will make you healthy because the norm now is to be unhealthy if you uh you know if you just do what everybody else does and so what's required is what's required is uh a whole series of different virtues like self-reliance uh responsibility maybe a a desire not to be dependent to be independent to you know to be a master of your own destiny and these are are sort of perennial i would say perennial um values that the right and that conservatives champion over the left so yes it's not a surprise now that when you look at mugshots from let's say the uh mostly peaceful protests of 2020 <laughs> in the us uh when you look at the mugshots of the portland antifa people who were all arrested they're unusual looking creatures um <laughs> uh not almost not entirely human but um but yes, uh, so that's the a little digression. But yes, to get to this global diet, um, people know the slogans. People know you will eat the bugs, you'll live in the pod, all mm. these sort of slogans about the Great Reset. But they don't, they don't understand that actually there is a very, very well developed plan that exists concerning food and the transformations that are necessary or that the globalists believe are necessary uh, to the food supply and the way that people eat in order to bring about the Great Reset. Um, now, none of this is speculation either. I, I, I wanted to make the book as watertight as possible. I didn't want to speculate. I didn't want to get drawn into any so-called conspiracy theory. So I've just relied totally on published statements, articles, interviews with the globalists, books. I mean, Klaus Schwab wrote a book called COVID-19, The Great Reset, funnily enough, in um, uh, 2020. So I've drawn on published work, readily available published work by the World Economic Forum and also by a very important partner of the World Economic Forum called the EAT Foundation. Now, the EAT Foundation is, uh, as I say, is a partner of the World Economic Forum and the World Economic Forum sort of farms out most of its thinking, most of the detailed thinking about food to the EAT Foundation. And they've come up with this thing called the Planetary Health Diet, and that is the main focus of my analysis in the sections on the sort of globalist vision for food. So this planetary health diet is basically the first ever global diet and and really the first ever global diet, you know, nobody has ever attempted to to produce a diet that will feed everybody on the planet, but this is what this is the globalist ambition and they say that we need to do this for two reasons. First reason is because of climate change because we need to we need to uh save the planet from climate change and agriculture is of course a serious producer of uh greenhouse gases as uh mm. as we're constantly told now and the second point is that we need to feed uh, a global population of 10 billion by 2050 so we need to do these two things we need to feed 10 billion people by 2050 in a way that doesn't cause the earth to catch on fire, uh, basically. So that's the those are the premises behind this notion of a global global planetary health diet. Um, and surprise, surprise, it turns out that the planetary health diet will have to be almost entirely plant based. Um, minimal minimal amounts of animal products. So one of the one of the things about it that particularly horrifies me is that you'll only be allowed to eat a quarter of an egg a day on the <laughs> planetary health diet. And they've actually they've actually come up with um, they've actually come up with detailed macronutrient breakdowns, a, a detailed a detailed um, sort of ideal calorie intake basically for the average um, 
stateless, uh, rootless, possessionless citizen of 2030. Um, so they've gone into great detail about this. You know, they've, they've commissioned a big, a big, big study. This involves the Lancet, which is the world's or once was the world's uh, most prestigious, well-respected medical journal. It involves um, some of the biggest players in the some of the biggest players in food. People like Cargill, Danone, uh, Unilever. All of these big corporations are partners of the Eat Foundation. So there is a there is a detailed plan for for food in twenty thirty, mm. and. Um, uh, it looks nothing like the foods that we should be eating, and that is that is one of the central things. That is one of the central points of of the book is to mm. is to uh, is to ram that home and and to and to tell you and to tell you why exactly why this plan will be so bad for our health. But they're they're well on the way to uh, they're well on the way to implementing it. Mm. Yeah, it's quite scary actually how quickly it's sort of happening. Um, I've particularly notice post pandemic that there's a real it's like climate change sort of uh, evaporated for the last few years and now it's sort of got a bit of uh, got a bit of motion behind it again and it's moving full steam ahead when I was growing up it was the hole in the ozone layer um, straight above yeah, us I remember that, was that. Gonna, that was gonna get us and then it was I don't even know the other names but it's the same agenda just they've laced it up they've put it in a costume they've changed the name you know they've mm. they've done it to try and make it seem i don't know more pressing or more more you mm. know in in need or imminent to to do these changes but mm. there really is like a dramatic push uh particularly post pandemic yeah. i mean I, I don't... i'm a i'm an environmentalist i'm i'm not i'm not anti-environmentalist i just mm. i just dispute i just dispute the importance of carbon emissions and I dis dispute the climate change agenda, and it is an agenda. Um, so I, I would be the first person to tell you that we need to be better stewards of the environment, and that's something mm. that I talk about in the book. I just think that the emphasis should be very different from yeah. the globalist emphasis on climate change, which is being used to justify the most incredible, the most fundamental social transformation in human history. And mm. and the the greatest extension of state and corporate control in history, um, uh, you know, to to say today that you are an environmentalist means to say that you believe in climate change and that you are, you know, you're totally behind the UN uh, UN tw agenda twenty thirty, the sustainable development goals, all of that kind of stuff. Um, but actually, actually, that is a well, I think in large part it is just a it is a cover for it is a cover for the extension of state and and, and corporate control, and that's something that I yeah. that I say in the book. But mm. um, but yes, it is it is very very interesting the way that um, the way that the narrative has changed. I mean, some of you some uh, viewers may know that um, you know up to the nineteen seventies nineteen eighties, then there was going to be another ice age. That was yeah. uh, that, that was the uh, that was the main prediction was that there was going to be another ice age and there's a there's a very funny um, Leonard Nimoy Mr Spock um, uh, panic um, I don't know whether it was an advert or a, or a television feature or what it was but he made a he made a sort of um, television feature in the 1970s 1980s about how there was a coming ice age and you know with all of these pa panicky sort of um, Images of um, unprecedented winters in the American Midwest that would, you know, within ten years' time become a regular occurrence, and um, mm. you know, you you just you we're just need here. to you just yeah, we're still here, we're still here, <laughs> and uh, and uh, Bar Barack Obama has just bought a, a beautiful ten million dollar seafront uh, property in Martha's Vineyard, and you know, the Maldives <laughs> are still here, and it's yeah. It just uh, just requires a little a little bit of critical thinking and some historical sense, and um, you can start to break out of uh, start to break out of the trance. But um, hmm. but yes, I think I think unfortunately a lot of people um, today, and I think it comes down to our education. We're not really taught how to critically think anymore. I think you go to a classroom, and you know, historically speaking, you were taught logic in schools. You were taught philosophy. You were taught reason, um, and you were 
you were taught sort of how to get to a conclusion, not necessarily what a conclusion was. And, you know, it's like now you fast forward to schooling today and they've skipped all of those steps. And you've got teachers who just say, this is what you have to think. This is what the answer is. And school has become memorization or regurgitation um, as opposed to, yeah, teaching kids how to critically think, how to analyze in information, how to, you know, look at statistics, look at studies, formulate opinions, um, hypotheses and, you know, theories and, and things like that. That's a lost art. And I think that it's intentional. I think that education has made an intentional change towards that direction because it allows for things like this to, to I guess, get some roots. Um, you know, historically speaking, um, you probably would have people that would hear these ideas and go, that's ridiculous. And that would be the end of it. Um, but now it's, it does, it, it, we've sort of allowed, we've created a space where these sorts of ideas can be fostered and cultivated and can take form in the real world. Um, because most people don't know how to critically think, unfortunately, mm -hmm. and look at sort of the sciences and the studies and things. I mean, look at um, farming, for example. I know this from experience, the, the farm that I live on, most of it, I couldn't grow vegetables if I wanted to. It's not appropriate for that. I have a couple of paddocks that are maybe flat enough, um, have enough water, have enough good soil that I could grow some crops. But most of it is very hilly country, lots of rocks, lots of things. And the mm. only thing that I could possibly farm would be livestock. Um, and I'm pretty yeah. sure most of the world is like that. And if you actually wanted to get rid of livestock, you would only be left with, what is it, less than 5% of all of, um, yeah. of all like properties around the world you can actually farm vegetables from. But people don't actually know this um, and people don't well, research well, this it. Is, yeah, this is, this. I mean, this is something that you see again and again with, with these very, very naive groups of people like Extinction Rebellion and Animal Rebellion, which is the which is the farming offshoot of Extinction Rebellion. So there was an interview on the subject of marginal land. Um, there was an interview with a with somebody from Animal Rebellion. Now they've been they've been going around, they've been going to supermarkets and um emptying milk hmm. in the aisles, basically, as a protest against the the um as a protest against the dairy industry basically you know so they're protesting the the carbon emissions produced by all those cows breaking wind and also the ethical <laughs> the ethical side of it too which which to an extent i can understand i can understand the yeah. ethical the ethical objections to the industrial production of mm. animal products in any form um and i talk about this in the book i'm i'm not pro industrial farming of animals um but anyway, these people are going around emptying dairy and staging these sit-in protests in supermarkets, and and also I think they've been going to dairy to dairy um, to dairy processing facilities and puncturing the tires of um, uh, delivery vehicles and things so that mm. dairy can't be delivered to the supermarkets. Um, but anyway, this this poor spotty young lad was interviewed on one of the one of the BB I think it was possibly the BBC or IT, ITV one of the British news networks anyway and he was saying oh yes our our demands are x y and z and we can feed the planet uh, if we just convert all the land that is used for livestock to growing plants mm. and the dreadful thing is the dreadful thing is that he should have been challenged by the presenter on that you know if you if you'd had somebody if you'd had somebody on the show who actually knew anything about agriculture they would have said it's impossible. what on earth are you to what, what are you what are you talking about this is insane mm -hmm. so 60% of all 60% of all agricultural land in the world is what's known as marginal land so that's land that can only be used for grazing so you can't do anything with that other than graze animals. Can't grow plants on it. You have to graze animals there. So mm -hmm. that leaves 40% that's arable land. Now, actually, of that arable land, a large proportion is suitable only for very particular crops. So there's arable land in North Africa, for instance, but actually you can only grow olives on it or other similar similar kinds of crops. So you're not going to grow any wheat there, I'm afraid. 
what you're left with is you're left with 3%, 3% of all agricultural land in the world is prime arable land. There you go. So, so you're telling me basically that what you're going to do is you're going to get rid of all of the, all of the nutrition that 60% of the world's agricultural land can produce all of that wonderful, as I say, nutrient dense animal protein and animal products that that sixty percent of land can produce, and you're just going to rely on three percent of the world's agricultural land to provide all of the calories. Now, I mean, on on paper that's very stupid, but but what the globalists say that they're going to do is that they're going to, um, of course, use new genetically modified strains yeah. of crops, uh, which yeah. produce higher yields. That they're going Synthetic to use all meat. sorts of synthetic meat but also that mm. they're going to use all sorts of ai assisted farming techniques to maximize you know the, the 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 yields and the way that the that the fertilizer is applied to minimize the runoff and all this kind of stuff uh i mean they they they're very definitely taking us in the frankenfoods in the frankenfoods yeah. direction and as with other things like the like the vaccines then we are going to be we are the experimental Mm. uh subjects in this in this um in this great reset you know Th- this yeah. is something that has never been never been tried before we mm. people do consume genetically modified food now and it's and it's actually often the case that people don't know that they're consuming it which is very very bad indeed and something that i'm against but there are all sorts of loopholes that allow companies that use or produce genetically modified products to avoid saying that that's what they're doing and I talk mm. a bit about that in the book, but we have never tried feeding people a diet that is mainly composed of genetically modified mm. food. Yeah, and yet that's what that's what the globalists want to do. Mm. And I think you know, you even just looking back to the sixties, um, you look at like photographs of people. Um, they look a lot healthier than photographs of groups of people that you see today. I think there's a another semi-famous photo of a beach where you look at people. I think it might have even been in the 70s, this particular photo, but it's a beach in America in the 70s and the exact same shot of a beach in America in, you know, the 2000s. And just the health um, difference in human beings is insane. And not just on, um, I'd, I'd say, like, an obesity scale health. I mean, there are more kids today with asthma than ever before in the history of that I, you know, every second kid has asthma or an allergy, for example, or an autoimmune disease. And you've got to ask yourself, um, why is that? You know, we're supposed to be advancing with medicine. We're supposed to be advancing with technology. We're supposed to be progressing towards something greater. But you look at the health of people today, and I would say we're regressing. I would say we've gone backwards. And, um, I, th- I think a lot of this comes down to um, the way they've modified foods, the way they've changed farming practices, agriculture. I think the things that they're putting into the soil, the chemicals, all of these sorts of things are unfortunately um, affecting our, our health negatively. And I don't even like what you mentioned. I, I don't even want to imagine what it's going to do to our health if they're going to try and do genetically modified food on this global um, scale diet that you you talk about, I I don't I I can't my head can't even get around what that could potentially do to our bodies, considering where we are health wise today, and I think how bad it is for us today. But you know, I wanted to touch on just sort of briefly something that you mentioned about you know you are sort of an environmentalist and you don't you're not for um, industrial sort of farming i'm 100 percent the same as a farmer um, i've seen bad practices and i've seen good practices and i can say this with experience and certainty when you treat your animals good and when you take care of them when you look after them um, the food tastes better the meat tastes better um you know and everything is a lot better so i too would love to see better practices for farms less mass farming there is so much waste we waste so much food so much meat so many eggs we we just waste Mm. we we waste so much in the west and i think that comes down to that mass sort of industrialized farming which is again Mm. poor practice it's not good for us um and it's obviously on a moral and sort of basis I don't agree with it as well but I think you go into that a little bit as well in some of your book as well about yes that sort of yes thing. I do. yeah I do I, I talk mm-hmm. I talk um 
there's a whole section of a chapter where I talk about um well actually it's more than that. I mean it's it's a theme it's a theme that's running throughout the whole book is the Great Reset really is the industrial model of agriculture turned up to eleven. This is a phrase I keep using, but it but mm. it's quite fitting. It's turned up to eleven. The the only aspect of the of the present industrial system of agriculture that's missing in the Great Reset model is animal farming. Mm. So they get rid of that. And you see, the thing is, vegetarians and vegans play this play this this game either either deliberately or through naivety and lack of knowledge where they pretend that gathering together as many animals as possible in what basically amounts to a concentration camp is the only way to produce mm. uh meat and dairy at scale so their argument is that you know you you can't you can't feed people at scale with animals unless you keep them in concentration camps and torture them uh and and then eventually kill them um and that just isn't true that just isn't true um so i talk a lot about the movement for regenerative agriculture that's been pioneered by people like joel salatin he's been a guest on joe rogan i think twice now um that isn't the way that isn't the only way to raise animals and mm. but but that argument is used to convince a lot of people that they have to give up eating animal food no we just have to give up farming animals in that manner yeah. um uh but yes the, the 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 great reset model of agriculture is industrial agriculture turned up to 11 and mm. the way that we've been doing industrial agriculture for the last circa 100 years definitely 70 years has brought has brought the planet to the brink of crisis it has it has destroyed the soils it has we people often people often refer to this model of agriculture as extractive agriculture because all it does is take you just you take you take you take you take and then eventually you're left with you're left with soils that have been totally exhausted and that you actually can't grow anything on i mean certain there are pessimistic estimates that actually there might be as little as 60 60 harvests left before the earth's uh arable soils are totally exhausted mm. top top soil top soil isn't some inexhaustible resource top soil stretches you know inches beneath beneath the surface of the ground in some places in other places it's much deeper than that but even so, you know, you you can exhaust it very quickly. The topsoils on the Great Plains in the US, for instance, were 12 feet deep when they first started to be farmed by settlers in the mid-19th century. Mm. And now in, in places, they're just a few inches, just a few mm. inches deep. And so that's the damage that you can do in 150 years. And, uh, you know, at least half of that 150 years, the farmers were farming using pre-industrial methods so you know actually actually really it's um been the last 75 years that they've really really managed to to chip away or to exhaust the topsoils and the basic one of the basic messages of the book really is that we need to do farming differently because i think i think we do we need to we need to farm in a way that not only um that not only takes into account the ethical demand for us to care for animals because that's that's you know that's whether whether or not you're christian i think that there is obviously an ethical burden on us to to care for animals as sentient beings um uh but also we need to we need to feed we need to produce food in a way that is sustainable in a way that doesn't that doesn't exhaust the tremendous bounty of nature because because we can do it like that we just don't do it like that because mm. because it requires more work and because it's less profitable for mega corporations you know this is this in, being no doubt that the industrial model of agriculture is a corporate it's the corporate model of agriculture it's the model that benefits corporations and that sickens the world um yeah it's it, it's that simple it's that simple i think that we need to we need to we need to stop we need to stop doing what's best for corporations to start doing what's best for us, uh, for our local communities, uh, nations, and for and for the environment. Hmm. 
Yeah, it, you you touched on, you know, um, even if you're not a Christian, et cetera, um, that we have obligations to do things. It's it's funny, I, as a Christian myself, I often look at, you know, why why is the world regressing? Why are we doing this? I honestly think it comes down to us rejecting Genesis, which is what we were created for. And if you look back at the very beginning of Genesis, you know, Adam was created first, um, from, from the dust of the earth, you know, and he was created from that and from the soil um, and from the dust, from the clay, Adam was made. Um, and one of the first things that, you know, God told Adam to do was to tend to the land. Um, Eden was, people think that Eden was the whole world. It wasn't, it was a garden. And the whole idea was they had to tend and maintain the garden. And then as their family grew, Adam and Eve, you know, the Eden extended. And I think, unfortunately, with this whole idea of environmentalism and how it's different to maybe what you and I would define it as, is you just have to leave the earth untouched. You're not allowed to touch it. You're not allowed to garden. You're not allowed to tend to things. You know, if, if you cut down trees or you prune something, you know, you're killing the earth and you're, you're terrible. You hate the environment. And, you know, if you farm or you use livestock, then again, you're ruining the earth. And it's completely mm. a rejection of Genesis, which was you need to tend and keep to the garden. That's what the earth was created for. And I think us rejecting that and not actually looking after the earth, tending to our gardens, tending to, you know, things that were given to us in creation is why we're sort of seeing this regression. We're moving away from how it was. And I think, you know, taking care of, of land and taking care of farming things is actually what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to cut down trees. Mm. We're supposed to mm. prune things. We're supposed to put animals to eat things so that it's natural way, like mm. a cycle. And we've rejected that for a really long time. And that's why I think, like you mentioned, well, wow, I th- like you go. I think that, I think, I think I was just going to say, I, th- I think that actually that a lot of, a lot of environmentalism very obviously shades into misanthropy, you know, mm. um, a lot of a lot you would hear a lot of environmentalists you even hear people like david attenborough saying things like yeah we are a skirt we're a scourge on the planet it would be better if we hadn't ever existed yeah. um uh and and maybe fingers crossed maybe you know if we if we if we cause a a, a large enough crisis then maybe we won't exist um mm. There's there's a there's a very very noticeable um, misanthropy that runs through a lot of environmentalism that I think is is as you say is based on a fundamental misunderstanding of what human beings are. I think that we are presented, or we're told that somehow. I think in part because we have this idea of nature versus culture, and we very you know we obviously are cultural, we are cultural beings, and somehow we stand apart from nature that that we're not of it. Whereas actually, of course, we are a part of nature, mm. and we've evolved alongside alongside other creatures. And and the things that we do are in our nature. It's mm. just that there are different ways of. It's just that there are different ways of doing them. And and I think that we need to. I think that the globalists uh, are are right in one fundamental aspect that now is the time for us to be thinking about about fundamental change to the way that we live i just think that the globalist vision is totally the wrong one and i say this in the book you know we we mm. the globalists are, pre- are presenting us with a challenge now they're saying you know we we need to change and this is how we're going to change but what we need to do is we need to come up with some we need to come up with some viable pro human alternative and um that's what i try to do in the book when i uh when I present the eggs Benedict option, which is my my answer to the Great Reset, but um, but yes, mm-hmm. as 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 you say, I think that I think that all round we need to return to we need to return to the right vision of what man is and what man should be, what man's purpose is. Um, uh, and yes, we, mm-hmm. yeah, we need to we need to return to the roots. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess that leads to my probably final question I was going to have for you. I'm aware we're sort of coming up on the hour, but I I have a sort of 
positive look towards the future. I guess you would say a hopeful look. I follow a post-millennialism eschatology, which is end of the world. I'm not one of those Christians who thinks we're going to be raptured. Everything is doom and gloom. I actually have a pretty positive outlook on, you know, what's going to happen. I think we, we almost have to. Otherwise, we're just going to sit on our hands, become apathetic, and we're just going to wait for somebody, you know, to, to do something for us. I like the idea of planting trees now, even if I'm not going to benefit from eating the fruit of it, but my kids will and my grandkids will. That's something I like to sort of look at. And that's my question to you. I know, you know, we've spoken a lot about the problems of what's happening, the great reset. I saw that you posted the other day on maybe Instagram or Twitter, a really young guy who was slonking eggs. And you said, maybe there is hope for the future. And so that's my question. Do you, do you see us getting out of this mess? Do you think there's enough traction with people who are critically thinking? Um, do you think people are sort of waking up to the great reset and are doing what you said in your book, which is we need to make change, but in this direction and not what the globalists are saying? Uh, yes, I do. Yeah. I mean, I, first of all, I think it's, I think it's nigh on impossible to live without some form of hope. So I do, um, I do. Uh, I am. I am hopeful, even in the even in the darkest moments. And the book is a hopeful book. Yes, the book definitely isn't a a black pill, as they say on certain <laughs> certain corners of the internet. I'm not trying to depress people. I'm trying to I'm trying to inform people and then tell them that there is a way out. But mm. yes, I do. I see I see signs everywhere, especially on Twitter, um, among the sort of people I follow and who follow me and who interact with me. I I see a a growing awakening there's a tucker carlson documentary coming out soon called the end of men which i'm a part of which is about the not about the great reset but it's about the crisis of fertility and um mm. ill health uh among men and um i mean it's an amazing thing that 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 that, that, that tucker carlson has made this documentary which features mm. me and which features other so-called right-wing bodybuilders of Twitter. Um, uh, I would, I would just say, tune in to see exactly. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty wild. But I think that that is a good sign that that the kind of message that I'm promoting and that other people like me on Twitter and elsewhere promoting is starting to get through. That people are starting to, starting to take notice of just how ill we've become through, mm. um, you know, the the poisoned food supply and inactivity and a lack of a lack of meaningful engagement with the world and purpose so that gives me yeah. hope um i mean on a, on a broader scale uh, there has to be there has to be a political movement against the great reset and i think that there's there's definitely evidence of that uh look at the dutch farmers for instance yeah. um uh they are explicitly saying this is the great reset and we don't want it. They know, they know what's going on. Mm. And I think for all his faults and failures, then the presidency of, of Donald Trump was, yeah. was in many, in many respects uh, should bring hope to people because it, it, at the very least, it shows just how, just how afraid the globalists are yeah. of a strong nationalist leader. You know, I mean, he te he terrified them. He terrified them, mm. and still terrifies them. And they've spent, they've spent, you know, six, seven years trying to destroy him, uh, trying to thwart his his every move. And mm. I think that 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 shows that these people aren't all powerful. That they don't. That they don't. Which is which is one of the reasons why I'm against sort of conspiratorial kind of more more conspiratorial types of thinking that try to present people like Klaus Schwab as as Emperor Palpatine or you know <laughs> the, the sort of the rulers of the world I mean these people are immensely powerful yes but they don't have total power and uh there are all sorts of signs at all sorts of different levels that actually mm. that actually we can beat them and so we just need to we just need to heed heed those um those signs we need to we need to organize we need to spread the word and we need to get behind political leaders we need to elect political leaders who explicitly say that they're going to fight it and um mm. uh i think that's the way to do it mm. 
Yeah, definitely. I agree with all of that. Um, before we finish today, where can people get a copy of your books? Um, I really recommend that people do get a copy of them. Um, <clears throat> give it away as gifts. Christmas is coming. So where can people find them? So my new book, um, if you're in the US, uh, you can get my new book cheapest from directly from the publisher, Antelope Hill at antelopehillpublishing.com. But if you're anywhere else in the world, you can get it through Amazon or other third-party retailers, Barnes & Noble, I know, a book depository, but probably the best the best place to go for the book is Amazon. That's where you can get most of my books as well. Um, there are a couple of books. There's my hardcover cookbook and uh, the Man's World Annual, which you can only get from the publisher, Antelope Hill. Um, but otherwise, you can get all the other paperback books um, uh, via Amazon. So so go to Amazon. Uh, I post all sorts of links on my Twitter, my Twitter page. Um, so you can go there too. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for uh, joining me for the show today. I really appreciate it. There is so much more I would have loved to go into all the different types of farming practices that you mentioned in your book, like the Russian backyard uh, farming and all those sorts of things that are interesting. So make sure you do grab the book um, because you don't want to miss out on those things. But thanks again for coming on and, um, you know, sort of lending me your expertise in all these things. And also thank you for getting me on to slonking raw eggs. A lot of people are disgusted, so they can blame you for that. Um, <laughs> but it is certainly something that I enjoy doing and will continue to do. And um, yeah, thanks again. That was my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.